The scripture reading um, starts at Genesis 6. When a man began to multiply on the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim on the, were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in, in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was the, a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked of God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it, it was corrupt, for all the flesh have corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth of 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to the cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of everything of all flesh, you should bring two of every sort into their kinds. They shall be male and female. Of the birth of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did that. all that um, God commanded him. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Carissa, for reading that for us this morning. We're in a series on Genesis chapters 1 through 11, the prologue, the beginning of the Bible. And we come now to the story of Noah and the flood. This story probably is one of the, if not the most misrepresented stories in the Bible. If you do a Google search on Noah, 
and just click like which images come up, Noah and the flood. You probably will see images of cute little animals who are smiling, um, walking two by two, that, those kinds of things will pop up. And so I just pick some out. You know, we've got an ARC activity book for elementary students, and the, and the animals are very happy. And there, Noah's a little older. Usually he looks a little bit older, and the animals are there happy, right, on the ARC. It's one of the most popular baby and kids' room decoration themes. I think one of our kids had a Noah's Ark um, theme in their room. So there you go. You see Noah. He's waving. You see the rainbow. I think the rainbow was there. On the, on the other one, and all, that's, all that seems very cute and very happy. If you've seen the movie, Evan Almighty, if anybody's seen that, I watched that for sermon prep. <laughs> yeah, I'm serious, with my son Luke, we watched that together, and um, it's a modern take on the Noah story. There's lots of laughs, and in the end, the worst thing that happens is a bunch of, like, homes, are destroyed. So, no harm, no foul. But this story that we just read in Genesis chapter 6, it's not really a story that makes you smile. It's not really a story made for a coloring book for toddlers. Why do we take this story of Noah and turn it into a very cute picture coloring book or we put it on a quilt for babies? Well, I don't know what you think, but I think it's because we're pretty troubled by this story. Because we are uncomfortable with the story as it is when we read it in the Bible. And God says things like he says in verse 17, Behold, I'll bring a flood of waters to destroy all flesh. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So either we say, Let's not think about that. Let's, let's just turn that into a story about animals and elephants that are smiling and that sort of thing. Or we can't do that. Some of us say, I can't do that. We say, this is why I struggle with the Bible. This is why I struggle with faith because of passages like this. So today, the question before us, we're going to do a two-part on the flood. We're just looking at chapter 6 right now. The question for today is why? Why the flood? This is a story that if you work through it, will provide you with what Noah's father, it's not here in the bulletin, it's in chapter 5 if you look in your Bibles, verse 29, what Noah's father prayed that Noah, his son, would bring to the world. Relief, comfort. Believe it or not, this is a story of relief and comfort. Noah's father, Lamech, said, This one, my son, will bring us relief or comfort from all our toil, from the curse, from living in a broken world full of violence. And in our world, David has led us through our liturgy this morning, and I felt a very powerful and effective way. We need this because the world still is a world that is full of violence, and we're going to talk about that this morning. But to answer this question, why the flood, we have to start with the short background story here 
in verses 1 through 4. And I almost wanted to skip this, but I think I said a couple times, like, I will talk about the Nephilim. And some of you are like, what's that? Well, we're going to talk about it. And some of you are like, I've been waiting for this. Okay, verses 1 through 4. As if we needed more difficulty and challenge this morning, this is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. Jewish and Christian interpreters have had many varying interpretations of what's going on here. Uh, To follow along, you're going to have to look at this text, verses 1 through 4, to follow along with me. This is a bridge. We have to place it in context. Between the genealogy that we looked at last week of two lines, we had the line of Cain, we had the line of Seth, that was last week's message. Between chapter 5, the genealogy of the two lines, and the flood, how did we get from that one, these two families living their separate ways, to an earth full of violence where a flood was necessary? How did we get there, these four verses give us a summary of how it came to be that wickedness, the wickedness of humanity became so great, God says in verse 5, and how everything God intended for humanity became corrupted and ruined, verse 11. There are three main options of what's happening here. One, this is a story about fallen angelic beings, the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Well, in the Bible, sons of God can mean angelic beings, and it does in other places refer to this. The word Nephilim, the mysterious Nephilim, that word means the fallen ones, so that may connect. Other passages speak of angels who fell from their place that God created them in into evil and darkness and work opposed to God. You put it together, you have fallen angels who somehow took on some type of corporeal human form to mate with women and their children were superhuman. The Nephilim. That's a view. There are problems with this view. Jesus taught the difference between humans and angels is that angels don't marry or reproduce. And if all the wickedness is due to these angels doing this, then why are only the humans judged and not the angels? View one. Angels. View two, it's about mighty kings. The phrase sons of God in the Bible can also refer to mighty rulers and mighty kings. Like Lamech, right, in chapter four, proud, boasting rulers who rule independent of God and say, I am mighty, it's about me, and kind of take on this divine type of aura. This is saying then, this this bridge is saying they kind of went wild, they took over everything, they took whatever women they wanted, and they corrupted the whole earth. You could even combine this view with the first view and say these mighty rulers were somehow demonically inspired. And then the point would be God put them in their place. They are not divine. Like some of the ancient Near Eastern people thought about the rulers, they are flesh like any other human. And they will be limited. That's the second view. The third view is this is a bridge about the mixing of the two lines, the line of Seth and the line of Cain that we read all about in chapter 5. Many interpreters have said that's what's being described here. And I think this is the best interpretation in my view because it fits the context. Because chapter 6 comes right after chapter 5, which is all about the sons of Adam. 
Adam who was made in the likeness of God. It is also possible that the phrase sons of God can refer to human beings. The people of God. It's translated this way with this meaning in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, where God says to his people, you are the sons of the Lord your God. So it could be referring, there are options here, to the sons of Seth, the godly line, or it could be referring to the sons of Cain who acted like they were godlike, who tried to transgress their humanity. Actually, both, I think, could fit. This interpretation fits the judgment and the context, right? The judgments on humanity, not angels, or not on just the mighty rulers of humanity. All humanity. And it fits the context in explaining how did we get from two lines, one who is walking in humility and weakness, calling upon the name of the Lord, the line of Seth, and the line of Cain, who was proud and boasting. How did we get from these two families to this situation where everything seems mixed together, where everyone is living in pride and independence? So this is telling us how that happened. Who are the Nephilim? I have no idea. <laughs> because the Nephilim just says, uh, the, the text says they were there. Were they mighty warriors? Probably. It just says they were there. It doesn't say they are the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. So, here's what we have. Noah. Noah, if you do all the math, I didn't do this, but other people did, thankfully. If you do all the math in chapter 5, what you see is that Noah is the first human being born into the world after Adam dies of natural causes. Can you imagine this? Everyone's living in this world. They're living long lives. That's what the text tells us. And all of a sudden, no one kills Adam. He dies, and everyone says, oh, this is what's going to happen to all of us. The curse of death that God mentioned in the garden is, in fact, going to happen. What will we do? We will resist. We will rebel. We will take what we want. We will make a name for ourselves, and we will live by human strength. Without God, we will try to transgress the limits and build our own name. Filling the earth with human pride and power, not as image bearers of God for his glory and the good of others, but for our own glory and our own advantage. And what is the result of all of this? Verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God says in verse 3, this situation cannot and will not go on forever. 120 years. Likely that's a reference between the situation in verse 3 and the time when the flood happened. 120 year period where God is patient in offering a chance for repentance. So that's the background story to our main question, why the flood? Why? Why would God do this? And what hope and comfort do we have from this passage. Three reasons here in the text. Why the flood? First, what God saw. Secondly, what God felt. And thirdly, what God promised. Let's look at each of those. In verse 5, we shouldn't be too quick to move past the words, 
the Lord saw. What did God see? It says he saw the greatness, the magnitude of human wickedness on the earth. He saw all the outward results, all of it. And he saw the inward source of all this outward result. Every intention of the thoughts or the imagination of the heart was only evil continually. Now, when the Bible says God saw, what does that mean? Since God is all-seeing, He's all-knowing as the Almighty Creator. Well, this phrase, God saw, is often found in the Bible preceding judgment. This is true in Sodom and Gomorrah, the story there. God came down to see before the judgment was pronounced. We see this a few chapters later in the story of Babel. It says God had to come down and look at what was happening. This phrase is the way that we, the reader, are being told God has done a very thorough investigation of the situation. God doesn't act on a whim. God doesn't fly off the handle. He sees. He sees it all. He has a full awareness. Not one act or choice or decision escapes his sight. He sees the heart. He sees all the way in to the thoughts and the imaginations. He sees what would happen if these actions and imaginations are unaddressed, if the cycle continues, if the plans and the thoughts of people's hearts are carried out. He sees what the effect would be on all of his creation and all people. And here's what he says here. If they continue, if they do what they intend to do, the great wickedness will only become greater. Look at verse 11. It expands on this in verse 11. It says, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was full of violence. 12, he saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. We see that repetition. And God says to Noah after that, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, this is a very significant passage to help us understand how to see how God sees. And there's a, um, a quote from a commentator that I thought was very helpful. You see the repetition of the word corrupt, 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 corrupt. And actually the word destroy is the same word, is from the same root. So here is a way to capture, as Victor Hamilton says, the consistency of word choice. We may render the above, verses 11 through 13, like this. Gone to ruin was the earth. Indeed, it had gone to ruin. All flesh had ruined its way, and I will ruin them. The choice of the same word to describe both the earth's condition and the intended action of God must be deliberate. It's the same Hebrew root word. God's decision is to destroy what is virtually self-destroyed or self-destroying already. I thought this was very helpful. God... What did he see? He saw his good world, the world he made and said, this is good. His image bearers, humanity, whom he made and said, very good. He saw it all corrupt and ruined. 
and destroying. It's very difficult for us, but if you were in charge of a community of people and saw all these things happening in this community, you saw wickedness, you saw ruin, you saw violence, and you had an x-ray into the heart of people and you knew it's only going to get worse. If you saw that, what would you do? God who sees all things and looks on the heart had seen enough. So in a world where we see only a very little, and if we start to pay attention to things that are wrong with the world, to the way the world is broken, to the violence in the world, we wonder, will it ever be addressed? Will it ever be healed? Does God know? Does God see? This text tells us God sees. He does know. Well, let's move further on. We're not just told what God saw. The text takes us to a deeper level beyond the facts and the observations of the situation. Yes, God makes a thorough and complete investigation of the facts, but here we are taken into the very heart of God in verses 6 and 7 where it says, The Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. What a passage. This is a glimpse into the very heart of the Almighty God. God was grieved to his heart by what he saw. Why the flood? God saw something, and then God felt something. Let's just sit with that for a moment. Why the flood? The answer here is because the grief of God over a world full of violence. Where God saw humanity's rejection of his design for us. A family of brothers and sisters made in His image, made to be like Him. A God who delights and takes joy in doing good. A God who is giving and receiving of love within Him very self, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A God who loves to share and overflows with joy in giving good, in giving Himself and self-giving with other creatures, human beings. And when given this life and this capacity... What do human beings do with it? They take from one another, use one another, disregard, hurt, and harm one another. And God is grieved by this. I was talking to somebody about this this week, and they had a good illustration to drive this home. Can you imagine how you feel, and maybe you felt this, if your own child is hurt? If there's some kind of violent act or bullying or something like that done against your own child or your own niece or nephew, somebody in your family, a young person, what if all your children are bent on hurting and harming and abusing and bullying one another and it never stops? (laughs) The grief would be too much to bear as a parent or as somebody who loved these little ones. 
to see the pain of their sinful choices, of their doing the bullying and the abusing, to see the effect of those choices on other people, to see it all. Nicholas Wolterstorff, in his book on his own grief called Lament for a Son, he wrote this. It's in the reflection quotes at the beginning of the bulletin. He said, It is said of God that no one can behold his face and live. He writes, I always thought this meant no one could see his splendor and live. A friend said perhaps it meant that no one could see his sorrow and live. No one could handle seeing that much grief. That's what we're given here. This, this text tells us this is the response of the heart of God when he sees violence in his world. The idea of an angry, unhinged God who reacts in vindictive punishment is nowhere here. We have a God who grieves at the pain, the suffering, and the lostness of humanity, and he must act. So much of our judgment is motivated by anger and vengeance and vindictiveness and condemnation and disgust at other people. That's not what we see here. We are ready to sentence someone to a flood of judgment if they just cut us off in traffic. And I know because I was there this week. This is not like the judgment of God. In verse 6, it says, He regretted making man. He says, I am sorry I have made them. It's a statement of grief. It's not God saying, Whoops, what have I done? What happened here? Now what? Statement of grief in judgment. And this pattern reoccurs throughout the story of Scripture. Whenever we see judgment, we see grief. Think of the judgment of the exile of God's own people, Israel, into Babylon. We have the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet of the exile. Which book appears right after the book of Jeremiah when the judgment was carried out? It's the book of grief. The book of Lamentations. See, the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, he is telling the Philippians, he says, I'm telling you now, I've told you this before, and I'm telling you this with tears, that actually in the world there are enemies of the cross of Christ, and their end is destruction. And Paul says, I can only say that with tears. And Jesus himself weeps over Jerusalem as they are rejecting him. And as He knows there is a coming judgment on that city. He weeps before he is crucified by them. There is grief in judgment. So for a moment now, I think it's important for us just to think for a moment about the world we're living in. Because we can be very desensitized to the reality of ongoing violence. Somehow. I've been paying attention to it this week. And in my laptop, I have windows. There's this little news window that pops up every time um, I open it up. And just this morning, there was something about a murder in Connecticut. There was a story. After that, I went away and I opened up again. And there it popped up. And then there was uh, a follow-up about violent murder that happened here in Orange County. And then there was something about 
another war going on in our world. We have a string of mass shootings in California recently. We had a violent stabbing murder in Orange County and um, Dana Point. Nationally, we have another case of police brutality. It seems like uh, I can see outside my window a flag, an American flag. It seems like almost every week it's flying half-mast because of violence. We have the ongoing war in Ukraine, which we talked about this morning, the bombing in Pakistan where a mosque was bombed, over 100 people died. And there are stories that continue every day of abuse and of violence. And there are stories in this room where you have been wounded by abuse and violence. If we saw, if we felt it all, it would be too much. And so we don't, we don't know what to do with it. Our hearts can't hold that much violence. What can we do with it all? All that we see and try not to see, the scars that we have and the wounds that we have from living in a broken and abusive and a violent world. Here we see, we can grieve, we can lament, we can cry out for relief and for rest and comfort and end to it all, a healing, a wiping clean, a new start and know that God grieves with you and with us. And that is a part of our Christian duty, our Christian witness, to witness to the grieving heart of God over a broken world. So why the flood? Because of the grieving heart of God. And because he can't bear to see violence continue without a response. So this is the third reason. It brings us to the third reason for the flood. What God saw, what God felt, and finally what God promised. Why the flood? God promised comfort and relief. How would that relief and comfort come? Two things that God said He will do that are a part of this promise. There's the promise of perfect judgment and the promise of abundant grace. Let's look at the first one, perfect judgment. God says in this chapter, I will blot out. I will. I'm promising. I've resolved to do this. I will ruin or destroy all that which ruins or which destroys. It will be destroyed. God says there will be a blotting out or a wiping clean of all this violence. He promises to fully and completely address it. And we might struggle with God's verdict here. We're still, after all this, say, was it really that bad? What if he let him live? What about a second chance, God? And a part of the reason we're able to say that is because we weren't the victims of that violence. Nobody that we loved was a victim of that violence. If that is the case, then our reaction is very different, isn't it? If it was us or our family, we would be calling for complete judgment, justice, to be done. Because there, there can be no true relief, there can be no true comfort for those who have suffered violence without judgment, without a just and perfect judgment. We struggle with it. We struggle with the idea of judgment. But I would suggest that something we would struggle with all the more is the idea of no judgment in a world of violence. Is the prospect or the idea that in this violent world, there's no accounting. There's no wiping clean. 
At best, we can hope for a very partial judgment in the hands of who? Other human beings who have power? Which would you struggle with more? So what relief and comfort is there in a world without perfect judgment? It's only if God removes those who do violence forever that there will be an end to violence. So friends, we are meant to take comfort in this, to have relief in this, that God is a fair and all-knowing judge. He knows when it is time to act, and He will act when it is time. That all violence and all that has ruined God's design for us and His creation will be judged. That which must be blotted out and wiped out will be wiped clean. And so we are meant to take comfort in that. But if that's all that God promises, then we are not left with the full and complete relief and comfort we need. In fact, we wonder if all we have here is the promise of judgment. For all those who are implicated in a world of violence and anger and abuse and breaking down the world and ruining what God has designed, then what about me and my heart? What does God see when He sees me and the intentions and imaginations of my heart? And all of a sudden, we're not in a place of relief and comfort, but a lot of discomfort. Herman Melville in Moby Dick, he said it like this. We'll let him say this. Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. In other words, if judgment is coming, we all deserve it. None of us is exempt. If God rises up in perfect judgment, what about me and my own heart? So here we have the promise of perfect judgment. It will be complete. God says, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, to destroy all flesh under heaven. Everything that is on earth will die. Okay, where's the relief and comfort now? There is something here that is even greater than God's promise of perfect judgment. The main point of this passage is not on the world that has become so ruined by resisting God. The main focus is not on judgment, but on God's promise that there is something even greater than judgment. Despite everything being under the judgment of death, look at verse 18. God says, but I will establish my covenant. You, Noah, will come into the ark you will be kept alive. Covenant is the highest form of promise that God can make, the highest form of commitment He can have. And He makes this highest promise, this covenant, to bring Noah through the judgment. Why? Why Noah? Well, go back to that mysterious yet wonderful verse that stands out among the rest. Verse 8, chapter 6. But Noah... He found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this is one of the greatest, 
buts in the Bible. Thankfully, it's not a family service. We get a lot more chuckles out of that one. Romans chapter 3 says, nobody can be justified by the law. We're all condemned. But apart from the law and the prophets, there is a righteousness of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Romans 5 says, death reigned from Adam onward. But the free gift, but the free gift is not like the transgression. Ephesians 2 says, we are all children of wrath, dead in our sins, but God, being rich in mercy, has saved us by His grace. That's something that is greater than judgment is grace. Grace is the undeserved favor of God. We sometimes read this story as the story of Noah and his family. Lucky for him... He got on the boat with all the smiling elephants, but everybody else didn't. This is about Noah, but it's more than that. We're reading the prologue. We're reading our story. This is about all of humanity and the world. This is a story of how God's grace exceeds His judgment, that mercy triumphs over judgment, about where sin increases, grace increases all the more. And all it takes is one man who receives and responds to the grace of God in obedience to save the human race, to save the entire world. All it took was believing Noah for his family. Get on the ark and you'll make it through the judgment. All it takes is one man who receives and responds to the grace of God in obedience to save the human race and to save the world. This is the comfort and relief in this story. By the grace of God, there's a way through the judgment that we all deserve. There's a way through to the other side that there can be perfect judgment. God can deal with all that is wrong in the world. He can destroy all that destroys His intentions without destroying us. How? It's by grace. And friends, yes, this is ultimately fulfilled In our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I will take the judgment. I will take the flood. I will go through the flood so you can make it through. All sin, all judgment, all the ruining of God's creation. I will take it on myself. All the flood of judgment that that deserves so you can have grace. So you can have relief and comfort in God's promise that there is a way to pass through the judgment into a new world by the one man who responds to the gift of life through his obedient life. All it takes is believing in this one man and he will carry you through. The last thing I'll say is this. This really gets us to the heart of Christianity. It really gets us to the heart of why do we believe that Christians can live a different way than all the violence and all the selfishness in the world? And it's this. Christianity does not say there are some who deserve judgment and get it and some who don't because they don't deserve it. And those are the saved ones. Christianity says all deserve judgment and only those who receive grace are saved. And it's those who know that they have passed through judgment. Those, God can make a new world with those people. Not people who somehow avoided judgment. 
Not somehow people who didn't earn judgment. Not somehow people who avoided judgment. They had to pass through. Noah was on the ark. He saw what happened to the entire world. And God said, I'm going to build a new world through you, Noah, and your family. It didn't work with Noah. That's why ultimately God himself came and through Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. He says, I will pass through the judgment for you. You didn't escape it. You didn't avoid it. You didn't go around it. You went through that by faith in me because I went through it for you so you can receive the gift of new life and a new world by grace. People who believe that are deeply humbled. There's no pride there because they know. They've seen this is what I deserve. And yet, wonder of all wonders, I can have joyful boldness because... I have been given grace. Jesus has brought me through. So no longer do I live above and over others in judgment. I've escaped the cycle of violence. And instead, I can live a life of self-giving love like the one man, Jesus Christ, who's brought me through. Let's pray. Father, We thank you that mercy triumphs over judgment. You are God who will never give up on your purposes for us and for this world. That you are a God for whom it can be said that grace always abounds all the more. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Even in this world, even in our lives, even as we open up the newspaper or the internet today and see the pain, the suffering, the grief, the violence. We trust because of Jesus that grace will abound all the more. Help us trust in your promise. Help us live as those who have passed through judgment into an entire new way of life and living that you might use us to be people of grace, love, mercy, and compassion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our service with a final song together. Would you stand with me and sing?